0: Welcome. I am your host, Nicole Nyberg. I am a neonatal nurse practitioner and also a proud preemie mama to my son, William, who just happens to be a former 23-weeker. So if you are a current or former NICU parent, you have come to the right place. I have been exactly where you are, and I know what you're going through. We will be discussing all things related to the neonatal intensive care unit for preterm and term infants, as well as some of the emotions and struggles parents endure along the way in the NICU and beyond. So tune in and get ready to become educated and empowered. This is the Empowering NICU Parents Podcast. While I make every effort to broadcast correct and up-to-date information, medicine is constantly evolving and advancing and I continue to learn new things each day. Every NICU baby and their journey is different, and every institution varies in their practices as well. So please, always consult your obstetrician and your infant's physician for any medical issues or concerns. I am presenting from my personal experience and knowledge. My opinions do not represent that of my employers. If you have had a baby, it is likely that you have heard the terms jaundice and or bilirubin. And although it is very common for infants to develop elevated bilirubin levels, otherwise known as hyperbilirubinemia, do you actually know or understand why it occurs? As a NICU provider, I think it is essential that parents truly understand the condition their infant is facing, but also the why behind why it occurs you do not understand the why, the treatment plan will also really not make sense to you. We want you to be involved as parents and to be genuinely engaged and an active part of the care team. But it is nearly impossible to be actively engaged if you do not understand the why behind the processes. So today, I'm going to educate you and simply break down how our bodies process bilirubin, how we eliminate it, what causes the skin color to become jaundiced and or that yellowish color, specifically on an infant's skin, why we as clinicians that care for term and preterm infants monitor bilirubin levels very closely, as well as some of the common conditions that might increase your infant's risk of developing hyperbilirubinemia. Now, some of the pathophysiology of hyperbilirubinemia can be confusing, But today, I will review it in a way that makes sense and does not become overwhelming, but rather educational so it makes sense to you, and you will then understand the treatment and plan of care for your baby. So let's dive into hyperbilirubinemia and the term and preterm infant. This episode of our podcast is sponsored by Neotech. Whether you are a NICU parent or a NICU clinician, it is likely that you have encountered Neotech products. Neotech manufactures innovative products specifically for NICU patients. With their goal to make a difference in the quality of treatment for premature infants and neonates, they also strongly consider the impact of their products on parents and clinicians. In this podcast episode, we will discuss hyperbilirubinemia and why it is so common in infants. On our next episode, we will discuss phototherapy, the common treatment method for elevated bilirubin levels in infants. Any infant who receives phototherapy needs to have eye shields in place, and with Neotex Shades, they have you and your baby covered, literally. I can speak both personally and professionally to the quality of Neotex Neoshades. My son required phototherapy very early on while he was in the NICU and i so appreciated knowing his eyes were protected and that there were eye shields available for his small size as an nnpn clinician it is imperative to have eye shields on our patients that fit appropriately and remain in place neotech offers two different types of phototherapy eye shields either with a head strap or tabs to secure them in place each version features their cute sunglasses design and is available in three different sizes to fit all neonates. Visit neotechneoshades.com to request your free sample or find the link in our show notes. Have you been searching for the perfect NICU journal and you've been unable to find it? At Empowering NICU Parents, we have created a comprehensive NICU journal called Our NICU Roadmap. The journal is specific for NICU infants and includes everything you've been looking for, plus more. We took all of your suggestions to heart and recently revised the journal based on your feedback as well. So it is smaller in size and will fit right into your bag, plus at a better price. The journal has everything I felt was pertinent, both as a neonatal nurse practitioner and a former NICU mother. Our NICU roadmap provides a place for you to document all of your baby's progress while they're in the NICU. It will equip you with all of the necessary tools so you can confidently become an active member of your baby's care team. We have included educational resources to help you understand the NICU journey better, including, but not limited to, a detailed glossary that covers terms and abbreviations common to the NICU, and a NICU image to help you understand equipment commonly used in the NICU. Not sure what questions to even ask the NICU care team? We have you covered. The daily log guides you with questions to ask the care team, plus adequate space to document all of the pertinent updates for your baby each day. Next, we included specific areas to document all of the details on your amazing miracle, including birth stats, delivery details, weekly measurements, eye exam, and head ultrasound results. We also included a separate full journal section in the back to help you document and process all of your feelings and emotions throughout the journey. In our journal, you will find everything you need plus the finite details you have not even thought of yet. I promise you will look back on this and be amazed by your little one and all of their achievements, and it will be such a great keepsake go and grab your copy of our NICU roadmap now on Amazon. Or if you are interested in buying in bulk at a discounted price for your hospital or organization, head to empoweringnicuparents.com forward slash NICU journal to contact us and see additional details and images of our journal, or find the link in the show notes. Now back to the episode. Elevated bilirubin levels, or the jaundice coloring of the skin, is common in term and preterm infants. As clinicians, we monitor bilirubin levels very closely in all newborns. When it comes to jaundice and bilirubin, the terms may be used interchangeably, but they're actually quite different. The term jaundice refers to the yellowish tinge of the skin. Jaundice is not actually a disease, but rather a symptom. Jaundice or yellowing of the skin is caused by elevated levels of bilirubin in the bloodstream. We as humans, even as adults, constantly form bilirubin and it is formed in our bodies once our red blood cells are broken down. Now during pregnancy, the placenta removes bilirubin from the baby or the fetus's blood. After delivery, the baby's immature liver takes over the role of removing the bilirubin. To effectively remove the bilirubin, once it is formed in the body, it has to be changed into a form that the body can get rid of, and this is done through a process called conjugation. Conjugation occurs in the liver and must be done so the bilirubin can be converted into water-soluble bilirubin pigments. Once the conversion occurs, the bilirubin can be excreted across the canicular membrane and naturally excreted through stool and also, to a lesser degree, filtered through the kidneys and excreted in urine. Any bilirubin pigments in the gut that are not eliminated can actually be reabsorbed back into the circulation, basically recycling the bilirubin load, which is called enterohepatic circulation. Elevated bilirubin levels, otherwise known as hyperbilirubinemia, occurs when bilirubin is made faster than it is removed due to either decreased conjugation or a reduction in the elimination of it. Now remember, conjugation occurs in the liver and converts bilirubin into a water-soluble form so it can be excreted. Bilirubin that is not conjugated or otherwise called unconjugated can cross the blood-brain barrier and cause damage to the brain. Hyperbilirubinemia is very common in infants, occurring in 50% of term and 80% in preterm infants, that it is almost considered a universal occurrence. And for many infants, it is not clinically significant. Just as I said, we all as humans formulate bilirubin in our bodies. So you may be wondering why is it so common and more potentially dangerous in newborns? It is more predominant in newborns due to their higher blood volume as well as their shortened lifespan of red blood cells. The red blood cell lifespan for infants is 70 to 90 days on average, as opposed to the typical 120 days of an adult. And the larger volume of red blood cells, coupled with the shorter lifespan of them, results in large amounts of red blood cell breakdown and an overproduction of bilirubin. Initially, the skin will appear yellow, typically in the face, followed by the chest and abdomen area. As the level of jaundice progresses, the white portion of the eyes may actually appear a yellow color. The changes in skin color may be more difficult to appreciate in children with darker skin. As clinicians, one of the ways we monitor for jaundice in all infants, but especially children with darker skin tones, is by pressing a finger on the skin, which causes blanching. If the skin appears more yellow than white or pink, then they would be considered jaundiced. Although elevated bilirubin levels are common in all newborns and can be benign for many, we as clinicians follow infants' bilirubin levels very closely because, as I mentioned, toxic levels of bilirubin left unmonitored or untreated can progress to silent or symptomatic behavioral and neurological impairments. Once the bilirubin is recycled, as I spoke about, meaning it does not become conjugated or excreted properly... It gets reabsorbed and deposited into the brain tissue, which leads to encephalopathy, brain damage, and hearing loss. Acute bilirubin encephalopathy, or ABE, is acute, progressive, and actually can be reversible if treated with very aggressive interventions. If the elevated bilirubin levels are not treated once the infant develops ABE, it can lead to what is called kernicterus. Infants who develop kernicterus suffer from irreversible or chronic brain damage that leads to permanent impairments. Now, my intent is not to scare you, but just to reiterate the importance of monitoring and treating elevated bilirubin levels. As I said, if left untreated, there are irreversible, devastating effects of hyperbilirubinemia that will affect the child's future. Now there is something called physiologic jaundice, and that occurs as the quote-unquote normal response to the infant's decreased ability to excrete bilirubin due to their immature liver. Jaundice in overall healthy term infants typically follows the pattern of the level gradually rising over the initial couple of days after birth and peaking around the third to fourth day, then gradually declining over the first week of life. Beyond physiologic jaundice, There are some other common reasons why infants develop hyperbilirubinemia that we will review now. Although there are some variations in the literature that I reviewed, for the most part, neonatal hyperbilirubinemia is classified into three groups, increased bilirubin load, decreased bilirubin conjugation, and impaired bilirubin excretion. First, we're going to discuss breastfeeding and breast milk jaundice. Although they sound essentially the same, they're actually quite different. Some articles and references I reviewed group breastfeeding and breast milk jaundice into one of the three classifications I just mentioned, but for our purposes today, we're going to discuss them separately. Now, first and foremost, I want to acknowledge that I am a huge proponent of providing breast milk and for mothers to nurse. But with that said, in general, breastfed infants do tend to have higher bilirubin levels compared with those that are bottle-fed. It has been postulated that breastfeeding jaundice is related to decreased caloric and fluid consumption from colostrum, leading to mild dehydration and increased intrahepatic circulation, meaning the movement of biliary acids, bilirubin, drugs, or other substances is delayed. Meconium, the initial form of stool in all neonates, has a large amount of bilirubin in it. With infants that are breastfed and, just as I mentioned, have decreased caloric intake, they will often have a delayed passage of meconium, leading to elevated bilirubin levels. Jaundice in breastfed infants typically appears between 24 to 72 hours and peaks by 5 to 15 days of life. Mothers who are exclusively breastfeeding are encouraged to feed their infants, as I like to say, early and often typically every two to three hours or eight to 12 times per day to minimize the effects of breastfeeding jaundice. Also, mothers should ensure that the infant has an effective latch. And please do not be afraid to ask for assistance from the nursing staff or lactation consultants. Nursing your infant is beautiful and actually quite amazing, but oftentimes difficult and not as easy as it is often made out to be. So to ensure your success and minimize the risk of breastfeeding jaundice, please utilize the resources that are offered to you. Now, breast milk jaundice is different in that it occurs later in the newborn period, sometimes into the third week of the infant's life. With breast milk jaundice, these infants have prolonged and exaggerated jaundice. The cause of breast milk jaundice is not fully understood but thought to be due to the factors present in the human breast milk that prevent the bilirubin from being properly conjugated, which then causes its reabsorption as opposed to excretion leading to hyperbilirubinemia. Mothers should be encouraged to continue breastfeeding and or providing breast milk unless otherwise indicated by their infant's provider, despite the infant having breast milk jaundice. But as always, follow your baby's provider's recommendations. Next, we will look at the causes for elevated bilirubin levels due to an increased bilirubin load due to an overproduction of red blood cells, which leads to an increase in their breakdown, and subsequently elevated bilirubin levels. Hemolytic disease of the newborn occurs when there are blood group incompatibilities, including RH hemolytic disease, ABO incompatibility, G6PD, and other minor blood group incompatibilities. RH incompatibility occurs when the mother's blood type is RH negative and the fetus's blood type is RH positive. The mother's immune system treats the fetus's RH positive cells as if they are foreign. She then makes antibodies that may enter into the bloodstream of the unborn infant and damage their red blood cells, placing them at a significantly increased risk for hyperbilirubinemia. R.H. incompatibility is not typically problematic with the mother's first pregnancy unless she had a previous miscarriage or abortion, but it can greatly affect the infants in the subsequent pregnancies if it's not treated. To prevent R.H. incompatibility, mothers are given the Rogam injection during the first trimester, which contains antibodies to the R.H. factor. RH incompatibility is now much less common in areas where prenatal care is available and mothers can receive ROGAM. With ABO incompatibility, the mother has the blood group O and the newborn has either A, B, or AB blood type. All group O individuals have naturally occurring anti-A and anti-B antibodies. During pregnancy, some of the mother's antibodies may cross the placenta and bind to the fetal antigens and damage them, causing an increase in red blood cell breakdown, leading to elevated bilirubin levels. It is important to determine the infant's blood type if mothers are O negative or O positive. If the infant has type A, B, or AB blood, the lab will also run a direct antibody test, also called DAT, or a Coombs test, which looks for foreign antibodies that are stuck to the infant's red blood cells. If an infant is DAT positive or has a positive Coombs test, it means that there was some mixing of the mother and baby's blood, either during the pregnancy or the delivery process. If mixing occurs, the mother's antibodies can attack the infant's red blood cells and cause hemolysis, or the destruction of red blood cells, placing them at an increased risk for significant hyperbilirubinemia. There are also some inherited causes and minor group incompatibilities that increase red blood cell breakdown, most commonly G6PD. Infants with G6PD have a deficiency in an enzyme with the very long name of glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase, or G6PD and it is more commonly found in infants who are of African-American, Mediterranean, or Asian descent. Clinicians should consider the possibility of an infant having G6PD deficiency if they experience significant jaundice and are from a family with a history of severe jaundice levels. Infants with polycythemia, or an elevated hematocrit, are also at an increased risk for elevated bilirubin levels, The increased number of red blood cells, coupled with the infant's shortened lifespan of red blood cells, results in a double whammy for our little ones. Polycythemia may occur due to, but is not limited to, those with post-maturity dates, twin-to-twin transfusion, chronic low levels of oxygen in utero, if their mother has diabetes, or with delayed clamping of the umbilical cord. Infants with a large amount of bruising are also at risk for elevated bilirubin levels. Newborns with facial bruising from a precipitous or quick delivery are at risk, as well as those with bruising on their limbs or body from the extraction during a cesarean section. Infants who have any enclosed hemorrhage, like a cephalohematoma, which is an accumulation of blood under the scalp due to the birth process or from manipulation during the delivery with a vacuum, will also be at risk for elevated bilirubin levels. The hemorrhage or accumulation of blood is from broken blood vessels or damaged red blood cells. So these particular infants with extensive bruising or hemorrhages are more likely to have hyperbilirubinemia. Lastly, infants may have an increased bilirubin load due to increased intrahepatic circulation, which we spoke about earlier with breastfeeding jaundice. As I said, meconium has a large amount of bilirubin in it. So any delay in the passage of meconium that occurs with conditions like Hirschsprung's disease, intestinal atresia or stenosis, or meconium plug or ileus will increase the bilirubin load that must be metabolized, leading to elevated bilirubin levels. The next classification for neonatal hyperbilirubinemia is due to decreased bilirubin conjugation, As I mentioned previously, conjugation of bilirubin is necessary so the body can excrete it properly. There are some syndromes that go beyond the scope of this podcast that result in decreased bilirubin conjugation, resulting in elevated bilirubin levels. Just to note, some pieces of literature do place physiologic jaundice or the quote-unquote normal process that we spoke about earlier on in this category due to the fact that the infant's immature liver is just not able to conjugate all of the bilirubin that is being produced. And the final classification is impaired bilirubin excretion, meaning something is preventing the infant's body from properly excreting the bilirubin out. Again, there are some disorders or diagnoses that go beyond the scope of this podcast episode, but it is important to mention that bacterial Or, intrauterine viral infections can cause an increase in bilirubin production and decrease clearance of it from the body. Neonatal bacterial infections like NEC or sepsis may result in impaired excretion due to liver impairment from the illness. Additionally, disorders like biliary obstruction, biliary atresia, chromosomal abnormalities, and some metabolic disorders may also cause impaired excretion resulting in elevated bilirubin levels. Now, we just reviewed the common causes and classifications of neonatal hyperbilirubinemia for term infants. But as you may know or have heard, hyperbilirubinemia is more prevalent, severe, and prolonged in preterm infants when compared to term infants. But why? Well, just as with term infants, preterm infants have a shorter lifespan of red blood cells, but their livers and gastrointestinal tracts are even more immature when compared to term infants. Additionally, there's often a delay in initiation of enteral feedings or NG or OG tube feedings in preterm infants, which results in slower intestinal motility and delayed clearance of meconium as well as bilirubin. Additionally, preterm infants may experience bruising due to their delivery process which places them also at an increased risk for developing hyperbilirubinemia. In general, it is believed that premature infants or those born prior to 35 weeks are at an increased risk to develop bilirubin-associated brain damage at lower levels when compared to term infants, so they often require earlier and much more aggressive treatment than term infants. Unfortunately, there's limited evidence-based data available to guide care and to precisely determine when we should begin treatment for infants born early or those with smaller birth weights. And we will dive much more into this topic as well as general monitoring, labs, and treatment for hyperbilirubinemia on our next podcast in a couple of weeks. I hope this summary of hyperbilirubinemia in preterm and term infants has been helpful. We often talk to parents about infants being jaundiced or having elevated bilirubin levels. But as I said, I think it's imperative, as with all things involving our personal health and that of our children and those that we love, that we really understand what it means and why it occurs. I am hopeful that this brought more clarification rather than confusion. As I said, in two weeks, we will discuss the different methods to monitor bilirubin levels, the typical patterns that bilirubin levels follow, additional labs your provider may look at, when to treat term and preterm infants based on the risk factors, and the typical methods to treat hyperbilirubinemia. So make sure you tune in then. We kindly ask that if you found this podcast helpful, please consider taking a screenshot while you're listening and tag us so we can continue to educate other families as well. For our show notes, links mentioned in the episode, and my reference list for this episode, head to empoweringNICUparents.com forward slash episode 32. Until next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Empowering NICU Parents podcast and have an amazing day. Remember, once empowered with knowledge, you have the ability to change the course. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Empowering NICU Parents podcast. For the show notes and any links mentioned in the episode, head to EmpoweringNICUParents.com. I would love to hear more from you on the topics you want to hear. So make sure you let me know in the comment section. Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a rating. Five stars would be awesome so we can help other NICU families. Remember, if you have any questions or concerns with your NICU baby, please consult their medical care team. Until next time, friends. Bye.